Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're talking with Christopher Paul Curtis, author of many beloved, award-winning books for young readers, including The Watsons Go to Birmingham, 1963, and Bud, Not Buddy. His latest middle-grade novel, The Journey of Little Charlie, is the newest installment of the Buxton Chronicles. Twelve-year-old Charlie Bobo, the title character, is the son of white sharecroppers living in South Carolina in 1858. Charlie's unlikely odyssey covers some rough terrain, both geographically and morally. It's a riveting tale that young readers won't want to miss. Christopher joins us by Skype from his home in Canada. Hi, Christopher. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. To set the stage for our listeners, could you read an excerpt from The Journey of Little Charlie? Of course. Uh, This is once Charlie and the captain have finally gotten to... Detroit, and they're about to capture the thieves. Sweat was pouring out of every part of my body. I kept going over my part. I wanted to get everything just the way the captain had explained it. I wasn't about to do none of what he called improvising nor improving. He kept drilling in me that things had to go A, B, C, and if they did, we'd be all right. We'd been standing in the alley for the longest time before he finally said, Don't turn now. That's her with the sack and the bonnet. The captain had me as a shield, ducking behind me so the woman couldn't see him. Soon she walked down by the alley. He gave me a shove, and I was on the sidewalk behind the woman. Following the plan, I run out in the street till I was ten yards past, then turned to face her. I said, Excuse me, ma'am. Do you know where? Both me and the woman gasped. I thought the captain had made a mistake, because whilst the woman did have an eye patch and a scar running across her cheek, he hadn't said nothing about her skin. She was colored. How could a black woman who didn't look no different than the slaves I'd seen around Possum Moan be the leader of a gang that robbed Mr. Tanner $4,000? Before I had much of a chance to think on it, Something about me told her I was trouble, and she squoze the bag to her chest and done a quick look round. I said, do you know where a stranger can get? She turned back to me, and at that second, the captain eased out from the alley. I flinched when a loud crack exploded from behind the woman's back. Time slowed down, and she jerked whilst a fine red mist rose up off in her back and settled across her head and shoulders. The woman's mouth came open, and she said, oh. That was extraordinary. I love the way Charlie talks. (laughs) (laughs) Could you tell us about the genesis of the book and the unlikely emergence of Charlie as the hero? I wanted to do a third and final book in the Buxton trilogy, and uh, I thought I would do it like I had done uh, The Madman of Piney Woods, the book immediately preceding this one where I had two narrators, one a white uh, young man 
any other, an African-Canadian young man. I thought I'd have dual narrators again, uh, with Charlie uh, being the white boy and uh, Sylvanus Demarest being the African-American boy. Um, I thought I'd start out with Charlie to write his parts first because I, f- I felt like his journey was going to be the longest, that he had the most to go through. So I wanted to get the hardest part out of the way. But as I started writing the book, and as I got to listen to Charlie's voice and heard how he sounded, uh, I kind of fell in love with the character. And it wasn't long before I knew that uh, Sylvanus Demers was going to have to wait for another book. This book was going to belong to little Charlie. What qualities about Charlie surprised you the most? I think what surprised me the most about Charlie was the fact that even though he had been brought up in these comparatively horrific circumstances, he was still, there was still a a glimmer of goodness in him. And that once the flames were fanned, that the goodness kind of came to life. I always thought uh, from the way he looked at things, which was so different than the way his mother and father had looked at things, that there was something about him where he was open. He had not, his, his mind had not completely closed to uh, all the other things. And I, and I think this is pretty common for young people. It takes us a long time to kind of wear them down and to get them to think the way we want to think, whether it be good or bad. Now, the story takes place in 1858 in South Carolina. This is a fictionalized account, of course, but what was going on then in the South? 1858 was uh, really kind of a critical time in the United States, particularly in the South, because there was a a great deal of uh, conflict about where the nation was going to go, whether it was going to be an industrial nation or if it was going to uh, rely on farming. And the South, of course, wanted farming because they had this wonderful asset of slaves where they were making all of this money and not paying for it. Uh, The North... Uh, wanted instead to try to industrialize and get away from farming. Um, One of the big things that happened in 1858 was uh, that was when Abraham Lincoln, who was a uh, candidate for the Senate from Illinois, uh, spoke to uh, a a gathering and uh, paraphrased a passage from the New Testament about a house divided against itself cannot stand. And that kind of summed up uh, the feelings that were going on in the South at the time that led to the Civil War and to uh, this this horrible conflagration that took place. The role that Canada played in helping people escape slavery will be surprising, I think, to many readers. It, it was to me. Why do you think the Canadian government had such a different perspective on slavery than those in the U.S., particularly in the South? Well, the Canadian government was still much more closely tied to England than the United States was. Uh, there And slavery was abolished in 1834, I believe, in the British Empire. And uh, as just kind of a, a side trivia, Buxton, uh, the settlement that I write about, was actually named after a man named Thomas Buxton, who was a British MP and who opposed slavery and introduced uh, measures to end it in, in 1834, which happened in Canada. Um, it wasn't all wonderful and, you know, kumbaya with Canada. There was uh, still a lot of racism. Uh, and the establishment of Buxton uh, was problematic. Uh, they weren't really uh, welcomed. They weren't well-received. People in the area did not want this 
a congregation of escaped slaves, which Buxton was. Uh, people had come to uh, for freedom. They didn't want that in their neighborhood or in their backyard, as as we say now. Um, so, uh, and and Buxton itself was an area that was carved out of the wilderness, and it was swampland. Uh, so, there, Canada looked at things differently in that way. Um, I think they'd had more experience dealing with uh, freed people than the United States did. What inspired your passion for history? Actually, I think the thing that really got me into history was the Civil War. Uh, I used to spend a lot of time in the library. My father would take my siblings and me to the library every Saturday, and we would be in there for hours. And for some reason, I kind of drifted away from the children's section. And the next section over, uh, one hallway down, was the history section. And I started looking at uh, pictures of the Civil War. And I think the gory pictures of the, the bodies just kind of made me wonder what was going on. You know, why, why, how could this happen? And uh, um, it, it's the Saturday morning journeys to the library that really drew me into history and the Civil War that really kind of kept my interest. And, you know, it was gore that got me there, but I, I learned so much other than the gore. So your novels deal with gore and the Civil War, <laughs> but they're leavened by humor. I can sense Mark Twain's influence. Uh, what dramatic purpose does humor serve in your narratives? Well, thank you for saying you see Mark Twain. That's a, a great compliment. Uh, I have a kind of a on-again, off-again relationship with Mark Twain. I, I think uh, at times that he is one of the greatest authors ever. And one of the reasons that I feel this way is uh, his writing of humor. Uh, humor is something that has a very short shelf life. The things that you and I might laugh at today, six months from now, aren't going to be funny. Five years from now will be a total waste of time to say. But Mark Twain, the things that he wrote about 150, 160 years ago are still funny. They can still bring tears to my eyes. So uh, I, I think that that's why I appreciate Twain. And I, I think that what I've learned from him is that you can't overburden a story that is tragic uh, and not have something humorous in there. Humor is a self-defense mechanism, really. When things are really tragic, there are great jokes that come up, and, and the Internet has really just exploded this. Something horrible will happen, and two minutes later, there are jokes about it online, and probably inappropriate, but, you know, you, they are funny. And I think that uh, when I'm using humor, it uh, not only does it draw people into the story and draw them into the character, but it also softens the uh, the blow of what they're uh, what I'm writing about. And I think I can get away with writing about uh, much harder subjects as long as I keep a humor component in it. How do you think the themes that you explore in your work, in particular, why it matters, how we treat others, especially those who are different or vulnerable, how do those themes resonate in the U.S. today? Boy, I, you know, I started writing this book uh, probably three, three or four years ago, and I would never have imagined that... Uh, the importance of the way we treat others and the importance of how we talk about others 
how that has come to the forefront so much recently uh, with what's going on in Washington. Um, I, I'm, I just feel that uh, it is so important that we look at each other and realize, yeah, there are differences, but the things that we have in common are so much more important and so much stronger. And that one of the really important things that we can't do is let people who, for their own reasons, want to divide us and know the buttons to push to keep us apart or try to drive us apart. We can't let that happen. We have to, uh, I'm I'm not a touchy-feely kind of new age guy, but I, I think that that is something that we have to do. You have to keep that in mind that the similarities are more important than the differences and the differences are the things that slow us down and drag us down. And I think that's what happens with Charlie in uh, The Journey of Little Charlie. He realizes that even though he is very different uh, than this young boy that he has come to kidnap, there are similarities between the two of them. And he has the sense and the goodness enough to realize that's what's important, not the differences. Can you tell us a little bit about your own childhood in Flint, Michigan? As a kid, did you ever dream that you would one day be an award-winning author? <laughs> never. I say never, but there are they're kind of signposts in your life, I think. Things that happen that you remember and you don't know why you remember them. And this is, I, I remember one thing about being a writer when I was younger. I can remember I was probably nine or ten, and I had an older sister, a younger sister, and an older brother. And I don't know the context of the situation or the conversation or where it came from, but I can remember saying to them very clearly, one day I'm going to write a book and a lot of people are going to read it. And I can remember it because they laughed so hard and, you know, they <laughs> they just made me feel so bad about it. And, and it's not as though I was uh, at that young age. As an author now, when I go to schools, I see people uh, who were nine and ten who write every day and are really good writers. That wasn't me. I I, I think I tried to write a uh, kind of a James Bondish, a black James Bondish spy novel uh, that didn't get very far. Uh, and that in, is my only memory of uh, wanting to be a writer. But uh, growing up in Flint, Flint was a very unusual kind of a city uh, in that it was... Uh, as many northern cities were, it was very segregated. But uh, the in, in some ways, that gave me a different perspective on things. It was segregated in a way where the doctors that we went to, the lawyers that we saw, the teachers that we saw, almost everybody was black. So I had demonstrated to me every day that you can do anything that you want. You work hard at something and you can do it. At one time, Flint had the highest per capita income for African-American people in the country. This, this was for decades because of the factories. So uh, my life in Flint was kind of typical uh, for a young African-American boy. I grew up in an all-black neighborhood, went to all-black schools. It was, in some ways, it was a good thing for me. It gave me a good base, I think. When did you first see yourself in the pages of a book? I think that I saw somebody who resonated with me for the first time, where I actually said, and I can remember reading this and saying, not 
he's got it. This author has it. This, this guy has me. It was Monster by Walter Dean Myers. And I was a, a middle-aged man when I read it. I, you know, when I was younger, I wasn't much of a book reader. I'd read magazines, newspapers, almost anything but books. But when I read Monster, it was kind of um, an affirmation to me of the importance of what I was doing. I never took writing kind of lightly. But then I saw that this is an opportunity to reach out to young Christopher Curtises or uh, Sidney Curtises, young people who were my age and didn't have characters that resonated with them. And so Monster was the one that really, really showed me how important it is to see yourself in a book. And why is that? Explain to our listeners, why is it so important that all children see themselves in literature? It's important because it lets you not be the other. You are, if you're the character in the book, and if the character is ringing true to you, that's important. That, that lets you know that somebody gets it, somebody has it. I, I think it really is important to, uh, for your self-esteem. It's important to the way you look at the world, that uh, you're not always the other. You don't always have to look at it from the outside. This is somebody who's telling it from the inside. And I, I think that's a very important concept. And why did you decide to write for young people? I didn't decide to write for young people. I uh, wrote The Watsons Go to Birmingham, 1963, my first book. And it was, um, I thought it was a story narrated by a 10-year-old. I never thought of it as a children's book. I, I, I never really thought of it as an adult book either. I just thought it was uh, a book narrated by a 10-year-old boy, probably for adults. Uh, it wasn't until uh, the book was published and I was told you're a writer for uh, young people that I finally said, oh, okay, sounds good to me. What do you hope children will gain from reading you, and how do you hope they'll see themselves in your books? I hope that uh, from reading my books, young people will see themselves in the story. Uh, and those who don't see themselves will see uh, somebody else that they might be seeing at school, somebody that they might go to school with. And, and see that they're not that different, that uh, we all think about things the same way. My ideal, perfect situation is a young person reads my book, and then something about the book, something about the story, triggers curiosity in them. And they might want to find out, what happened in Buxton? Was this true? Or uh, would the Watsons go to Birmingham? How did it feel to go into the South like that? Um, that is the ideal situation. And they'll go and get a history book and read the history book and then have a basis for making their decisions. And when you do that, you're not just flopping around and being driven by which way the wind is blowing. When you're making choices in life and when you're making um, opinions about people and about situations. Thank you so very much, Christopher. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much again to Christopher Paul Curtis for joining us. And thank you for listening. To learn more about the journey of little Charlie, 
check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Don't miss an episode of Scholastic Reads. Find us and subscribe in the iTunes podcast app or wherever you find your podcasts, and each episode will automatically be delivered to your phone. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow, sound engineers Daniel Jordan and Chris Johnson, and music composer Lucas Elliott Everill. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.